Section 14 of The Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annabelle Smith. The Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll. Dangers of the Deep, Part 1. Neither ships of the staunchest steel, nor seamen however skillful, nor pilots never so knowing, can wholly avoid the dangers of a seafaring life. Experience in reading the signs of the ocean and of the skies, surveyors' charts of coasts and harbors, added to the appliances of powerful modern machinery, have lessened the perils, it is true, since the old times, yet even now ships sail proudly out of sunny havens, their topsails watched by loving eyes till they disappear at sunset, and are never seen again. On a calm day in 1782, the great hundred-gun line-of-battleship Royal George sank her anchors in the harbor of Spithead, carrying down almost a thousand souls. Thirty years ago, the captain, then one of the finest of England's steam turret ships, capsized at sea, and not a man survived. Each of these vessels was perhaps the best of its kind in the world. No better navigators exist than naval officers, yet they ran the historic old steam frigate Kearsarga on Roncator Reef in the Caribbean Sea in broad daylight, and left her there a total wreck. Not a year passes that does not record some dire calamity on the ocean, and many lesser accidents. The wild oceanic storms are responsible for fewer of these than anything else. I mean the mere power of wind and waves in the open sea. When a captain has sea room, and knows in advance, as he almost always may, of the coming of a storm, so that he can make everything snug, the loss of his vessel, or even serious damage to her, is not common. Yet the mere violence of the gale has overturned, beaten down, and extinguished the greater part of the Newfoundland fishing fleet again and again, and doubtless many of the ships that are recorded as missing have been sunk simply by overwhelming waves. Certain rare and extraordinary mishaps, nevertheless, may meet a vessel in the open ocean. One of these is a stroke of lightning, powerful enough to set a ship on fire, in spite of her lightning rods, and such a fire is likely never to be quenched. Another extraordinary occurrence would be an overwhelming waterspout, such as not infrequently is seen in the tropics, especially along the Chinese coast, where it often plays havoc with fishing junks. A third unusual yet possible peril is the meeting with those waves of sudden and extraordinary size and volume which sometimes engulf vessels in storms that otherwise might be safely weathered, or are surmounted only by a miracle, as it were. These are said to be produced in some cyclones as one of the effects of that whirling form of storm, and are often called tidal waves, but the tide has nothing to do with their formation or progress. To say that a ship in mid-ocean might be destroyed by an earthquake seems paradoxical and absurd, yet it is true. Whenever a subterranean convulsion occurs beneath or at the edge of the sea, the water will be agitated in proportion to its force. Strike a tub of water a gentle tap, and see how its liquid contents shiver and ripple. Watch a railway train running at the edge of a body of water, and observe how the water trembles under the percussion of the wheels upon the ground. Earthquake shocks give rise sometimes to great disturbances, either by a direct jar to the water, or by setting in motion waves whose rolling does damage, especially in confined harbors. Sometimes a port will be suddenly invaded by a wave, the cause of which was an earthquake, which rolls in upreared like a wall, and carries death 
and destruction in its course. The principal port of the island of St. Thomas in the West Indies was once devastated by this means. The incoming wave is said to have been over forty feet high and broke inland, destroying much property and causing many deaths. So tremendous was this breaker that it landed a large vessel on a hillside half a mile from the harbor. Such catastrophes are not uncommon in volcanic districts, where the ocean retorts with terrible vengeance when it is struck by the land. That appalling explosion in 1883 of Krakatoa, in the Strait of Sunda, was followed on neighboring coasts by a series of vast billows that rolled inland, deluging a wide extent of shore, sweeping away over 150 villages, and crushing or drowning more than 30,000 persons. Within a few years, the coasts of northern Japan have been inundated repeatedly by earthquake waves with similar dire calamities, and are likely to occur again. Now and then, earthquakes are felt even in the open sea, far from land. Thus, Captain Lecky, a scientific writer upon the sea, tells us that in one instance where he was present, the inkstand upon the captain's table was jerked upward against the ceiling, where it left an unmistakable record of the occurrence, and yet this vessel was steaming along in smooth water, many hundreds of fathoms deep. The concussions, he says, were so smart that passengers were shaken off their seats and, of course, thought that the vessel had run ashore. All this disturbance was, nevertheless, only the result of a shock at the bottom, and when the non-elastic nature of water is considered, the severity of the jar is not surprising. It would seem as though, in the vast breadth of the world of waters, and with nothing to obstruct the view, two ships might easily give one another a wide berth. Yet a collision is one of the ever-present dangers of voyaging, even far from land. It is to avoid this peril that all the maritime nations have agreed upon certain signals, and rules of the road, which are the same in all parts of the world, and without which it would now be almost impossible to carry on commerce or travel on the water. The rules of the road say that when two vessels are approaching one another head-on, each shall turn off to the right far enough to avoid the other, that when two vessels are crossing one another's courses, the one which has the other on her starboard, right hand, must turn to starboard, the right, and go behind the other vessel while the latter continues along her course, and that a steam vessel must always get out of the way of a sailing vessel, one at anchor, or disabled, or a vessel with another in tow. It is presumed that every ship will keep a sharp lookout, and that in the daytime two approaching ships will see each other in time to keep safely apart. But in the darkness of night, none could be safe unless all carried lights by which the position and character of each could be determined. In ancient times, this matter of lights at sea was a much more troublesome one than now. We know that the Roman navy managed it somehow, and had methods of signaling by lanterns and torches. In medieval and early times, say up to a couple centuries ago, a ship's lights were a much more conspicuous and bothersome part of her than now when, indeed, electricity has simplified as well as perfected signaling, as much as it has benefited general illuminations on ship's boards. In such ships as those of the Armada, and long afterward, three huge lanterns made of ornamental ironwork, sometimes large enough to enable a man to move about inside them, surmounted the elevated afterquarter, and these were filled with dozens of great candles. How important candles were in the stores of one of these old ships, is shown by the fact that we still call a merchant who outfits vessels a ship chandler. 
regular rules were formulated for judging of a ship's position and movements, and how you ought to steer by the way these beacons grouped themselves. The introduction of whale oil gradually superseded candles, and as the sperm lamp did not require a glass house, smaller lanterns took the place of the big ones, until finally, by the aid of lenses, reflectors, and kerosene, and still more lately by the use of electricity, ship's lights have become the small, handy, and powerful ones they are today. The present rules as to lights are these. Using the language of a United States Navy officer, Lieutenant John M. Ellicott, who has written many instructive and entertaining essays on sea affairs. When you face a ship's bow, the side at your right hand is called the starboard side, and the side at your left hand is called the port side. On her starboard side, a ship carries at night a green light, and it is so shut in by the two sides of the box that it cannot be seen from the port side or from behind. On her port side, she carries a red light, and it is so shut in that it cannot be seen from the starboard side or from behind. If the ship is a steamship, she carries a big white light at her foremast head, but if she is a sailing vessel, she does not. This white masthead light can be seen from all around except from behind. It is for the red and green lights, commonly known as the side lights, that the officer of the deck most intently watches, when the lookout warns him that lights are in sight, for by them he can see which way the vessel is going. If her red light shows, he knows that her port side is toward him, and she is crossing to his left. If it is her green light, her starboard side is toward him, and she is crossing to his right. But if both the red and the green are showing, she is heading straight in his direction. If a vessel has another vessel in tow, she carries two masthead lights instead of one. And when a vessel is at anchor, she has no side lights or masthead lights, but a single white light made fast to a stay where it can be seen from all around her. In rivers and crowded harbors, it is often impossible to follow the rules of the road, and sometimes even at sea the officer of the deck of one vessel discovers that the other is not heeding the rules. Then the steam whistle is used to tell the other vessel what the first is doing. Thus, one whistle means, I am going to the right. Two whistles mean, I am going to the left. Three whistles mean, I am backing while a series of short toots means, look out for yourself, get out of the way. There is one class of vessels which is most annoying to those who direct the course of large steamers. These are small fishing vessels. On the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, on the coast of Spain, and on the coasts of China and Japan, big fleets of these little vessels are found at all times. They show no lights at night, preferring to save the expense of oil, and take their chances of being sent to the bottom. But when they see a big ship rushing down upon them, they light a torch and flare it about. Often they pay for their folly with their lives. The torch is seen too late, or not seen at all, and the great iron bow of the steamship crashes into the frail little craft, perhaps cutting her clean in two, and the unhappy fishermen sink into the foaming wake of the churning propellers, leaving not a soul to tell their wives what became of them. Signaling with lights is principally of use to men of war, where, also, lanterns hung in the rigging in a particular order have definite significance. For long-distance signaling, the best system is that invented by Lieutenant Ferry, USN. These night signals consist of a white, a red, and a green star, each fired into the air from a pistol, so that firing one, two, or three of them in quick succession and in different orders, with a pause between the groups, different letters or signal numbers can be made until a sentence is complete. They can be easily read from vessels 12 miles away. 
for nearer work the system of the spanish navy officer arroz which consists in flashing and extinguishing by means of a switchboard on deck a series of red and white electric lamps in the rigging serves very well and close at hand a signal man waves an incandescent electric bulb by night as he would a flag by day it is however when the land is approached that the sailors perils become menacing here old neptune is still a match for us when he asserts himself nevertheless we must go upon the restless waters and must risk a contest with their power along the coasts where the ocean's line of battle may be said to be therefore every effort has always been made by men on land to be of aid to their brethren at sea by erecting beacons to guide them by night as well as by day by marking the channels so that hidden shoals rocks and obstructions may be avoided and by contrivances to save life and property when the fury of the gale renders seamanship futile and the noble ship is cast away in the surf thundering on some wild shore to break up in a few hours what could be more humiliating to our pride as well as terrifying to our hearts than such a scene as that in samoa in 1889 when a whole fleet of ships including powerful men of war was wrecked while at anchor in the beautiful harbor of appia of small use then were all their charts and lighthouses buoys and breakwaters the disturbed state of affairs in samoa caused the assemblage there during march eighteen eighty nine of three small german men-of-war adler olga and eber the british corvette calliope and the american steamships trenton vandalia and nipsic the trenton captain farquhar was one of our largest warships at that time and the flagship of rear admiral kimberley the vandalia captain schoonmaker was somewhat smaller and the nipsic commander mullen was still less in size on march fifteenth a hurricane demolished the whole of this fleet except one and ten merchant vessels besides and caused the loss of nearly one hundred and fifty lives it is an extraordinary story which has been fully related by mr john p dunning from whose article in st nicholas for february eighteen ninety the accompanying facts and illustrations are drawn the harbor in which disaster occurred is a small semicircular bay around the inner side of which lies the town of Appia. A coral reef, visible at low water, extends in front of the harbor from the eastern to the western extremity, a distance of nearly two miles. A break in this reef, probably a quarter of a mile wide, forms a gateway to the harbor. The space within the bay where ships can lie at anchor is very small, as a shoal extends some distance out from the eastern shore and on the other side another coral reef runs well out into the bay the war vessels were anchored in the deep water in front of the american bay the Abe and nipsic were nearest the shore there were ten or twelve sailing vessels principally small schooners lying in the shallow water west of the men-of-war the storm was preceded by several weeks of bad weather, and on Friday, March 15th, the wind increased, and there was every indication of a hard blow. The warships made preparation for it by lowering topmasts and making all the spars secure, and steam was also raised to guard against the possibility of the anchors not holding. The wind rose to a hurricane and was accompanied by heavy, wind-driven rain and when toward morning it became evident that some smaller ships were already ashore, and that the warships were dragging their anchors in spite of every effort, the whole town was awake, and much of it down by the beach, seeking what shelter it could from the sleet-like blast. This night of horror gradually lightened into dawn, 
and when it was seen that all the warships had been swept from their former moorings and were bearing down toward the inner reef, the decks swarmed with men clinging to anything affording a hold. The hulls of the ships were tossing about like corks, and the decks were being deluged with water as every wave swept in from the open ocean. Several sailing vessels had gone ashore in the western part of the bay. Those most plainly visible now were the Aber, Adler, and Nipsic, very close together and only a few yards from the reef. The little gunboat Aber was making a desperate struggle, but her doom was certain. Suddenly she shot forward. The current bore her off to the right, and her bow struck the port quarter of the Nipsic, carrying away several feet of the Nipsic's rail in one boat. The Aber then fell back and fouled with the Olga, and after that she swung around broadside to the wind, was lifted high on the crest of a great wave, and hurled with awful force upon the reef. In an instant there was not a vestige of her to be seen. Every timber must have been shattered, and half the poor creatures aboard of her crushed to death before they felt the waters closing above their heads. Hundreds of people were on the beach by this time, and the work of destruction had occurred within full view of them all. They stood for a moment, appalled by the awful scene, and a cry of horror arose from the lips of every man who had seen nearly a hundred of his fellow creatures perish in an instant. Then, with one accord, they all rushed to the water's edge nearest the point where the Aber had foundered. The natives ran into the surf far beyond the point where a white man could have lived, and stood waiting to save any who might rise from the water. There were six officers and seventy men on the Aber when she struck the reef, and of these, five officers and sixty-six men were lost. This was about six o'clock in the morning. During the excitement attending that calamity, the other vessels had been for the time forgotten, but it was soon noticed that the positions of several of them had become more alarming. The Adler had been swept across the bay, close to the reef, and in half an hour she was lifted on top of the reef and turned completely over on her side. Nearly every man was thrown into the water, but as almost the entire hull was exposed, all but twenty succeeded in regaining her deck, and the remainder were rescued toward the close of the day when almost exhausted. Just as the Adler struck, the attention of everyone was directed towards the Nipsic. She was standing off the reef with her head to the wind but the three anchors which she had out at the time were not holding, and orders were given to attach a hawser to a heavy eight-inch rifle on the forecastle and throw the gun overboard. As the men were in the act of doing this, the Olga bore down on the Nipsic and struck her amidships with awful force. Her bowsprit passed over the side of the Nipsic, and after carrying away one boat and splintering the rail, came in contact with the smokestack, which was struck fairly in the center and fell to the deck with a crash like thunder. For a moment, it was difficult to realize what had happened, and great confusion followed. The iron smokestack rolled from side to side with every movement of the vessel, until finally heavy blocks were placed under it. By that time, the Nipsic had swung around and was approaching the reef, and it seemed certain that she would go down in the same way as had the Aber. Captain Mullen saw that any further attempt to save the vessel would be useless, so he gave the orders to beach her. She had a straight course of about 200 yards to a sandy beach in front of the American consulate, where she struck and stood firm. Two attempts to lower boats were failures, and every man crowded to the forecastle. A line was thrown, double hawsers were soon made fast from the vessel to the shore, 
and the natives and others gathered around the lines, where the voices of officers shouting to the men on deck were mingled with the loud cries and singing of the Samoans. One by one, and in a very orderly manner, the men of the Nipsic came down the hawsers towards the shore, but many would never have reached it had it not been for the assistance of the Samoans, who at the peril of their lives stood in the boiling torrent, grasping those whose hold was broken from the rope. Meanwhile, the four large men of war, Trenton, Calliope, Vandalia, and Olga, were still afloat in a comparatively safe position, but about ten o'clock the Trenton was seen to be in a helpless condition. Her rudder and propeller were both gone, and there was nothing but her anchors to hold her up against the unabated force of the storm. The Vandalia and Calliope were also in danger, drifting back toward the reef near the point where lay the wreck of the Adler, and they came closer every minute until finally the English ship struck the Vandalia and tore a great hole in her bow. Then Captain Kane of the Calliope determined to try to steam out of the harbor as his only hope, and he at once cut loose from all his anchors. The Calliope's head swung around to the wind, and her engines were worked to their utmost power. Great waves broke over her bow, and she gained headway at first only inch by inch, but her speed gradually increased until it became evident that she could leave the harbor. This maneuver of the British ship is regarded as one of the most daring in naval annals. The one desperate chance offered her commander to save his vessel and the three hundred lives aboard. The Trenton's fires had gone out by that time, and she lay helpless almost in the path of the Calliope. The decks were swarming with men, but, facing death as they were, they recognized the heroic struggle of the British ship, and a great shout went up from aboard the Trenton. Three cheers for the Calliope!' was the sound that reached the ears of the British tars as they passed out of the harbor in the teeth of the storm, and the heart of every Englishman went out to the brave American sailors who gave that parting tribute to the Queen's ship. When the excitement on the Vandalia, which followed the collision with the Calliope, had subsided, it was determined to beach the vessel, and, straining every means at hand to avoid the dreaded reef, she moved slowly across the harbor until her bow stuck in the sand, about two hundred yards offshore and probably eighty yards from the stem of the Nipsic. Her engines were stopped, and the men in the engine room and fire room below were ordered on deck. The ship swung around broadside to the shore, and it was thought at first that her position was comparatively safe, as it was believed that the storm would abate in a few hours, and the two hundred and forty men on board could be rescued then. But the wind seemed to increase in fury, and as the hull of the steamer sank lower, the force of the waves grew more violent, yet no one on shore was able to render the least aid. These terrible scenes had attracted attention from the other two men of war still afloat, but around four o'clock in the afternoon the positions of the Trenton and Olga became most alarming. The flagship had been in a helpless condition for hours, being without rudder or propeller, while volumes of water poured in through her hawser pipes. Men never fought against adverse circumstances with more desperation than the officers and men of the Trenton displayed during those hours, yet the vessel was slowly forced over toward the eastern reef. Destruction seemed imminent, and as the great vessel was pitching heavily, and her stern was but a few feet from the reef, this point was a quarter of a mile from shore, and if the Trenton had struck the reef there, it was probable that not a life would have been saved. A skillful maneuver, suggested by Lieutenant Brown, saved the ship from destruction. Every man was ordered into the port rigging, 
and the compact mass of bodies was used as a sail. The wind struck against the men in the rigging and forced the vessel out into the bay again. She soon commenced to drift back against the Olga, which was still standing off the reef and holding up against the storm more successfully than any other vessel in the harbor had done, and in spite of every effort on the part of both ships, a collision took place which severely damaged both. Fortunately, the vessels drifted apart, whereupon the Olga steamed ahead toward the mudflats in the eastern part of the bay, and was soon hard and fast on the bottom. Not a life was lost, and several weeks later the ship was hauled off and saved. The Trenton was now about two hundred feet from the sunken Vandalia, and seemed sure to strike her and throw into the water the men still clinging to the rigging. It was now after five o'clock, and the daylight was beginning to fade away. In half hour more, the Trenton had drifted to within a few yards of the Vandalia's bow, and feelings hard to describe came to the hundreds who watched the vessels from the shore. Presently, the last faint rays of daylight faded away. The night came down to the awful scene. The storm was still raging with as much fury as at any time during the day. The poor creatures who had been clinging for hours to the rigging of the Vandalia were bruised and bleeding, but they held on with the desperation of men who were hanging between life and death. The ropes had cut the flesh on their arms and legs, and their eyes were blinded by the salt spray which swept over them. Weak and exhausted as they were, they would be unable to stand the terrible strain much longer. The final hour seemed to be upon them. The great black hull of the Trenton was almost ready to crash into the stranded Vandalia and grind her to atoms. Suddenly, a shout was borne across the water. The sound of four hundred and fifty voices was heard above the roar of the tempest. Three cheers for the Vandalia, was the cry that warmed the hearts of the dying men in the rigging. The shout died away upon the storm, and there arose from the quivering masts of the sunken ships a response so feeble it was scarcely heard upon the shore. Every heart was melted to pity. God help them, was passed from one man to another. The cheer had hardly ceased when the sound of music came across the water. The Trenton's band was playing the Star-Spangled Banner. The thousand men on sea and shore had never before heard strains of music at such a time as that. An indescribable feeling came over the Americans on the beach, who listened to the notes of the national song mangled with the howling of the storm. But the collision of the Trenton and Vandalia, instead of crushing the latter vessel to pieces, proved to be the salvation of the men in the rigging. When the Trenton's stern finally struck the side of the Vandalia, there was no shock, and she swung around broadside to the sunken ship. This enabled the men on the Vandalia to escape to the deck of the Trenton and in a short time they were all taken off. The storm had abated at midnight, and when day dawned there was no further cause for alarm. The men were removed from the Trenton and provided with quarters on shore. During the next few days the evidences of the great disaster could be seen on every side. In the harbor were the wrecks of four men of war, the Trenton, Vandalia, Adler, and Eber, and two others the Nipsic and Olga, were hard and fast on the beach, and were hauled off with great difficulty. The wrecks of ten sailing vessels also lay upon the reefs. On shore, houses and trees were blown down, and the beach was strewn with wreckage from one end of the town to the other. Ever since men began to go to sea, lights had been placed on shore to guide them to a landing place, but in early times these were nothing more than fires on headlands, kindled, perhaps, by the wives and children of the captain and his crew of neighbors, when these mariners were expected home. 
these friendly services became a little more systematic when merchants began to risk their property on the water and on the shores of the mediterranean which we have found to be the cradle of civilized navigation and trade harbor beacons were erected in very early times as guides to a safe anchorage the giant statue known as the colossus at rhodes is supposed to have been used as a beacon and lighthouse a fire burning in the palm of its uplifted colossal hand at night although the account of the colossus is only a matter of guesswork it is historically true that in those ages of ignorant heedlessness of the needs of beacons a lighthouse was built so grand in proportions so enduring in character that it became known as one of the seven wonders of the world and outlived all the others save the pyramids by centuries and in some ways has never been excelled by any similar structure in modern times unless it be by our mammoth marble monument to washington this was the lighthouse built on the little island of pharos by ptolemy philadelphus king of egypt two hundred and eighty years before christ to guide vessels into the harbor of alexandria from all descriptions it must have closely resembled our washington monument for it was built of white stone was square at the base and tapered toward the apex open windows were near its top through which the fire within could be seen for thirty miles by vessels at sea the destruction of these beacons in the general smash and ruin that seemed to have overtaken the world when the roman empire went to pieces is only indicative of the way the darkness of barbarism returned and enveloped the minds as well as the works of men until light broke through the clouds again with the rise of organized sea powers in western europe then beacons were gradually rebuilt but in almost all cases by private hands the feudal lords of coast estates the master or authorities of seaports, the monks in monasteries near dangerous landings, and now and then the king at his principal port, setting up marks for steering by day and lighting fires on dark nights. Most of the latter were hardly more than tar barrels, which would burn brightly in a gale, and the better class were towers of stoneworks, on top of which a mass of coal was ignited in an iron cage and kept stirred into brightness by a watcher. It was an easy matter to imitate such beacons and wreckers would often set up false lights. Many a fearful tradition has come down in the doings of wreckers, not only in England and Spain, but in America and in the East. One of their tricks, when they saw a ship approaching in the evening, was to hang a lantern upon a horse's neck and let him graze, well hobbled, along the beach. This would appear like the rocking of a lantern on a vessel at rest, what is called a riding or anchor light, and deceived by this promise of a safe anchorage, the stranger would not discover that he had been cheated until his keel struck a reef or a sandbar, and the pirates had begun their villainous attack. It is said to have been a device of this kind which caused the wreck in 1812 on the Carolina coast, whose islands and lagoons are reputed to be infested by such ruffians, there known as bankers, of a vessel carrying the beautiful Theodosia Burr, daughter of Aaron Burr, and wife of Governor Alston of South Carolina. Her death at the hands of these men is illustrated on page 172. During the reign of Henry VIII of England, an association of mariners called, in short, the Guild of the Trinity, was chartered and given various powers and privileges in connection with the newly instituted Royal Navy and dockyards. It encouraged coast lights, and in 1573, Queen Elizabeth formally placed authorities to erect and govern lighthouses and coast beacons in the hands of this corporation. And there it remains to this day, for its headquarters, Trinity House on Tower Hill in London, 
our recognized office of the British government, answering to our lighthouse board. It was not long before it encouraged the founding of a permanent light on Eddystone Shoals, a group of reefs near Plymouth, exceedingly dangerous because they lie precisely in the track of ships, bound up or down the English Channel, yet almost invisible. Upon the mere standing room afforded by the crest of this rock, Sir William Winstonley managed to erect two hundred years ago a tower of wood and iron trestle work bolted to its foundations and carrying a glass room or lantern containing a coal grate eighty feet above low water mark. This was completed in 1698. One winter's experience convinced him that it needed strengthening, and in 1699 a case of masonry was built around the tower and made solid to the height of twenty feet, while the whole structure was increased to the height of one hundred and twenty feet. Then, it is related, when Stanley boasted that the sea had not strength enough to tear it down, and all England rejoiced in so noble a beacon, but we now know that the construction was faulty, in its large diameter, polygonal outline, excess of ornament, and lack of weight. While Sir William was within it making repairs, four years later, the memorable hurricane of November 20th, 1703, swept the coast and left scarcely a trace of the tower. Its value had been proved, however, and it was replaced, in 1706, by a straight-sided tower of oaken timbers, weighted in their lower courses by stone. This was designed by an engineer named Rudyard, and lasted until it burned down in 1755. And engineers say it was better for its place than the round, solid-based stone tower of Smeaton that followed it, and became so celebrated. This was finished in three years, and in 1760 was lighted, not by a fire, as of old, but by candles, the first use of such an illuminant. This truly illustrious lighthouse remained until a few years ago, when it became so racked by the assaults of the sea as to be unsafe. It was then replaced by the one that stands there today, rivaling its magnificent neighbor on the Biscay shore opposite, the lighthouse of Carduan, which was built to support a bonfire of oak, but has remained to be lighted successfully by oil lamps, by gas burners, and finally by electricity. End of section 14. Recorded by Annabelle Smith.